I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about a few oral arguments the court heard, women in the Supreme Court, and we interview former Attorney General Ed Meese. So Tiffany, what's happening at SCOTUS this week? It is a busy week at the court. Uh, So this week, the court nixed one of the two travel ban cases. Since the challenge provision expired, the court said it was no longer a live case or controversy, which, of course, the Constitution requires in order for a case um, to be heard by a court. So it sent the Fourth Circuit case back down to that court with orders to vacate the decision as moot. Now, Justice Sotomayor dissented. Uh, she would have dismissed the case as improvidently granted, which would have kept the lower court order in place. Yes, which would have been a very different result in yes. this case. <laughs> uh, so the Ninth Circuit decision is still in play for now, uh, but it's likely to meet the same fate for similar reasons. The court also heard this week the National Association of Manufacturers versus Department of Defense. So this is a case involving what court has jurisdiction to hear a challenge to the waters of the U.S. rule. So um, to give you background on this, the Clean Water Act authorizes the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers to regulate navigable water. So in a huge power grab, the Obama administration issued a rule defining waters of the United States to include streams, rivers, marshes, um, essentially any body of water, no matter how remote the connection to navigable water. And they did this, of course, in order to expand um, the EPA's control over these. Over every puddle in America. (laughs) Yes. Uh, To highlight just how broad this rule was, I recently saw a funny coffee mug made by Green Bag that says, caution, may contain waters of the United States. (laughs) I need one of those. (laughs) So this this rule caused a lot of issues, especially for property owners and farmers. Um, President Trump directed the EPA to review the rule, and the EPA is in the process of rescinding the rule. So a lot of the challenges uh, to the substance of the rule will probably be dismissed. But the court will nonetheless hear this case uh, because it still needs to clarify whether individuals who challenge the rule or eventually a new rule um, need to know whether they must bring their challenge in a district court or in a circuit court under the statute. So the court also heard oral argument in Jessner versus Arab Bank. This case involves the Alien Tort Statute, which was passed in 1789 as part of the first Judiciary Act. The Alien Tort Statute allows district courts to hear tort actions brought by non-U.S. citizens for violations of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. So in the early years of our republic, this law provided foreign ambassadors an avenue for legal redress in the event that they were harmed while they were in the United States. The law was mostly forgotten until the 1980s when the trial bar rediscovered it and started using it as the basis for lawsuits alleging human rights violations. So the issue the court will hear in Jessner is whether corporations may be sued under this law. The court previously considered this very issue in the Keobel case in 2013, but ruled that American courts lacked jurisdiction since the alleged misdeeds took place outside of the United States. So in Jessner, the claims were brought by victims of Hamas against Jordan's Arab Bank for holding accounts for terrorists and sending large sums of money from its New York branch to support attacks in Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. So the bank in this case points out that Israel's courts rarely award punitive damages, unlike the United States, so that may be a reason why Jessner and others want to sue in the United States. 
And uh, Paul Clement will be arguing this case on behalf of the bank, our guest on last week's episode. That's right. So we'll see if the court is ready to answer the question that it left open in Kiobel. So next up, we're going to talk about ladies in the Supreme Court. <laughs> so the National Archives and Consource recently hosted a discussion about women in the court featuring three alumni of the Solicitor General's office, Deanne Maynard, uh, Judge Patricia Millett, and Sarah Harrington. Also included were Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog and Marlene Tressman, who wrote a biography about one of the early female Supreme Court advocates, Bessie Margolin. So there have been more than 700 female lawyers who have argued before the Supreme Court. The very first was Belva Ann Lockwood. She argued a case in 1880. And it actually took an act of Congress for her to be allowed to present arguments at the Supreme Court. So times have certainly changed. They have. Uh, so the ladies who worked in the SG's office uh, who, who were speaking at this event, they talked about some of the traditions of the office, including that the lawyers from the SG's office wear a morning suit when they argue at the court. When Deanne Maynard joined the office, she wanted to wear the full suit, pants and everything. Previously, women like Lisa Blatt and others who had worked in the office had worn a modified morning suit with a skirt. So Deanne says that her boss at the time, Ted Olson, asked the Chief Justice, William Rehnquist, if Deanne could wear the full skirt suit, and apparently Rehnquist said that he preferred that, but that they should ask Sandra and Ruth, who were, of course, the two female justices, and Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the female advocates should wear whatever they want. So Deanne ordered her morning suit, but by the time of her first argument, she was eight months pregnant, so she had to rent very large tuxedo pants for her first argument. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's really funny. The first time I um, saw a Supreme Court argument where um, the United States was a party. It looked so funny to me that someone was in a, a morning suit with tails. I was like, who is this goofball? And I look up and it's like, the Solicitor General. <laughs> yeah. So Amy Howe of Scott's blog gave a brief profile of the four female justices we've had. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. And she talked about how O'Connor and Ginsburg both faced um, a lot of adversity in, in when they were trying to find jobs right uh, after law school. In fact, O'Connor went to interview for a job as an associate at a law firm, and she was offered a secretary position, not exactly what she was looking for. Uh, And she ended up taking an unpaid job on a trial basis until she could prove that she was worthy to be hired as a lawyer. Uh, Ginsburg, also a trailblazer, struggled to find employment early on. Uh, In fact, her law school dean apparently convinced a district court judge in New York to take her on as a law clerk with the assurance that he had a backup male law clerk in case Ginsburg didn't work out. Uh, I think it's safe to say that she probably ended up being a good law clerk. <laughs> so anyway, it was a really interesting discussion um, hosted by Consource and the National Archives, and you can watch the whole event on YouTube. So we're pleased to have Ed Meese with us today. Mr. Meese was the 75th Attorney General of the United States under President Ronald Reagan, and he's a distinguished fellow emeritus at Heritage. So welcome to SCOTUS 101, Mr. Meese. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. So speaking of ladies at the court, President Reagan nominated the first female justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. Was that considered a bold move at the time, or do you think our country was ready for a woman to be on the court? Well, I don't think it was particularly bold, and I think the country was ready. Uh, Certainly President Reagan was ready. Uh, He felt when he was elected that uh, there should be a woman if a qualified woman could be found. And so he asked the then Attorney General, Bill Smith, my predecessor, to look at all the judges on the the courts, the uh, appellate courts and district courts uh, who were women. Uh, And uh, Bill did that and came up with, uh, I believe, two names one of which was Sandra Day O'Connor, who had had an outstanding record. She had been a state legislator, then she'd been the judge of an intermediate appellate court in Arizona. She had been very uh, 
uh, very uh, prominent in her law school class. Uh, she actually, I believe, had been in law school the same time as the then Chief Justice, uh, excuse me, not then Associate Justice, later Chief Justice, Bill Rehnquist. And so uh, she became the first woman justice of the Supreme Court and uh, did an outstanding job. So when you were Attorney General, you headed up the search for Lewis Powell's replacement, which ended up being Anthony Kennedy. But Kennedy wasn't the first choice. His nomination came after two D.C. Circuit judges had been considered, uh, Robert Bork and Doug Ginsburg. Can you tell us about this process and how Kennedy was ultimately selected? Yes. Well, when uh, there was a vacancy, Lewis Powell, an outstanding justice uh, over the years, uh, was uh, when he uh, retired, uh, the first... The f- the immediate selection by President Reagan was Bob Bork. And uh, Robert Bork had been one of the contenders when the vacancy occurred earlier uh, in his uh, in 1986. And uh, when uh, the he, he was one of the two finalists, and when the other one was chosen, uh, the president had him in mind for the next vacancy. That occurred in 87. And so uh, he was immediately nominated. Unfortunately, through because of uh, vicious politics and the fact that the Democrats had just taken over leadership of the Senate, and when you had a, a really a terrible attack on uh, Bob Bork by a group of leftist uh, organizations, the so-called Alliance for Justice, uh, an outfit called People from the American Way, various other uh, really uh, bad people, uh, and who had a nasty uh, and false series of accusations. And so as a result, uh, Bob Bork was uh, not confirmed. Many people said that this was probably the the, the Senate at its worst uh, in 1986, uh, 87. So when Bob Bork uh, was not confirmed, uh, then uh, there were two nominees presented. And uh, one of them, the one the president selected, unfortunately uh, had a record uh, of, uh, I believe, it had to do with... Uh, uh, some marijuana use in a very minor way in uh, when he was a, either an instructor or a student uh, in college or law, college or law school. In any event, uh, the he withdrew, and uh, therefore the remaining justice was uh, Ken, Justice Kennedy, who I knew quite well because I had known him as a lawyer in California back in the days when Ronald Reagan was governor. And of course, uh, he also knew him at that time because he had been active in supporting uh, Ronald Reagan as governor on a number of projects uh, during his governorship. And so uh, uh, as a result of that, uh, Justice Kennedy was appointed. We had checked his record and he had been a justice in the Ninth Circuit, appointed by President Nixon at at then Governor Reagan's request. And uh, he had a, uh, an absolutely perfect record of decisions in the sense that they were all uh, very constitutionally oriented decisions. And on that basis, uh, the president was uh, pleased to appoint him to the U.S. Supreme Court. Justice Scalia was confirmed 98 to 0. And less than a year later, the Senate voted down Robert Bork. And since then, most Republicans have been confirmed mostly along party lines. So what caused that change in less than a year? I think the change was, again, because of, uh, for one thing, uh, that the Senate had changed in its leadership. Uh, and you had a very different chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time than you had had previously under uh, Chairman Strom Thurmond. Uh, and so when the new uh, chairman took over, uh, he was very partisan 
very hostile to anybody who believed in the Constitution. And also you had these very left-wing groups uh, that suddenly rose up as uh, special interest groups for the left. Uh, As I mentioned, the so-called Alliance for Justice and the group that was known as the People for the American Way. And uh, as a result, they really started this uh, mean, anti-constitutional diatribe, really, against any uh, potential justice who really believed in the Constitution as it was originally written and as it was originally meant by those that ratified it. Yeah, I wonder if part of it might have had to do with the fact that President Reagan got to nominate three people already by by the time we got to uh, to Robert Bork being considered, and and they you know they just didn't want to uh, put up you know without much of a fight uh, going forward for more Reagan uh, appointees to the Supreme Court. Well, actually, there had been opposition before, and there was opposition to uh, Bill Rehnquist for Chief Justice in uh, 1986. Uh, but uh, that was uh, short-lived in the sense that he was so obviously qualified. As, quite frankly, Judge Bork uh, was probably one of the most qualified persons ever nominated for the Supreme Court. Uh, Most all legal experts uh, said that. And so this was strictly a very mean, spirited, and nasty political move uh, by the, uh, which the majority of the uh, Senate, uh, then in the hands of the of the Democrats uh, persisted in. There are rumors that President Reagan wanted to appoint you to the Supreme Court. Uh, Is it true that you said it would be a lifetime sentence to law school? (laughs) Well, I don't know whether the rumors were true or not. Uh, We never got to that point, Uh, although I had offers perhaps to become a judge earlier in my career, uh, but I always did feel it was like being sentenced to law school (laughs) in the sense that I was much more uh, interested in being an active trial lawyer as I was in my early days in in the profession uh, rather than being on the other side. I had actually had experience as a judge when I was in the Army. I was sat on a court-martial board and uh, frequently felt that I wanted to jump over on the other side of the bench and tell the <laughs> lawyer what to do. So uh, I just uh, felt that uh, being a judge was not—and I have great respect for judges, quite frankly— but it wasn't something that I wanted to do. So we recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of a series of speeches you delivered on originalism. What prompted your interest in advancing this method of constitutional interpretation? Well, partially it was uh, Ronald Reagan's concern about the the courts, the federal judiciary. Uh, as governor, he had suffered under uh, some bad rulings by the federal courts uh, and also by some litigation that was taking pl- place in the federal courts. And he felt that uh, the it was important that the courts returned to their constitutional role intended by the founders, and that was to interpret the law, not to usurp the function of of legislators and make the law. And so that was the reason for, in 1985, in my speech that year to the American Bar Association, talking about the need for the courts to return to a jurisprudence of original intention or original meaning so that they followed the Constitution and not the whims, the political biases or policy preferences of the justices, but actually that we return to the idea of law as it was meant to be in the Constitution. So today, even liberal justices pretend to be originalists sometimes. Uh, But without the early backlash from Chief Justice William Brennan and Justice John Paul Stevens, 
Do you think originalism would have gained traction the way that it did? Uh, no, I really don't. I thought that was the luckiest thing that ever <laughs> happened. Uh, after uh, my speech to the American Bar Association, uh, Justice Brennan and then Justice Stevens uh, gave talks uh, which representing the unconstitutional view of interpretation. And uh, so uh, the fact that we had a fight then and the Federalist Society, which was just getting started at the time, uh, published a booklet which had my speech and then the speeches of the justices and also the comments of Ronald Reagan uh, when they, he presided over the installation of Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Scalia, in which he reiterated his views uh, of, a, a con of a constitutional court. And so uh, as a result of that, once there was a, a controversy, uh, that got a lot of public attention, and the, so the battle was on. <laughs> and so after they had given their speeches, I gave another speech at, at Tulane University and then another one at Dickinson College. And so as a result, the uh, whole idea of re the reasserting originalism as the basis for interpretation of the Constitution uh, began uh, the Federalist Society was good in prolonging it. They included speeches on, on this subject in many of their conferences. And uh, as a result of that, it has continued up to the present time so that today uh, virtually even professors uh, in law schools who are not sympathetic to the originalism view uh, feel compelled to at least talk about it in their lectures. Yeah, I think it was during Justice Kagan's confirmation hearing she said something like, we're all originalists now. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, I had a very funny experience uh, in uh, my speeches. I, I've often talked about uh, the importance of the Constitution, and I mentioned in one speech that uh, in the leading constitutional law casebook, the Constitution wasn't referred to until it was printed as Appendix H in that <laughs> yeah. book. And uh, about two weeks later, I got a letter from a, a law professor, and he said, apparently you're referring to uh, my book because it, you said it was the leading casebook on constitutional law. I want you to know in the next edition, I'm moving the Constitution up to Appendix A. <laughs> so I guess that's progress. <laughs> so you got to know a number of the justices pretty well. Um, what's your favorite memory um, or interactions with any of them? Well, I know n a number of them, and of course I've known uh, Justice Kennedy, as I mentioned, for a long time. Uh, I know uh, several of the others, but I think probably the, one of the most uh, enjoyable times that I've spent has been with uh, Justice Thomas, Clarence Thomas. He's a good friend. I had the privilege of swearing him in when he was chairman of the uh, Equal Opportunity uh, Board uh, Commission, and uh, uh, he's been a friend for a long time, and I've just enjoyed many times lunches with him. He has a great sense of humor, and he's a very kindly man. Uh, once, uh, not uh, not long ago, recently, uh, he uh, invited uh, me to bring our interns from the legal center at Heritage to meet with him and spend a considerable amount of time with them. And then he, in turn, asked me to meet with his clerks, and so we had a uh, two very nice times, once with our interns and once uh, having lunch with the justice and his clerks. So uh, Clarence is just a, a good friend, a great justice, probably one of our greatest justice, one of the clearest writers that we've had on the court in a long time. So the, both the personal and the professional relationship with him has been a real pleasure. So if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? You know, the, that's quite an order because there have been a lot of justices. <laughs> I think it would probably be Chief Justice John Marshall. Uh, he was uh, one of the early uh, justices, uh, chief justices. I think he was 
the fourth longest serving uh, judge, uh, justice of the court and the uh, longest serving chief justice of the court. But particularly, he was there for 34 years, starting in 1801. And uh, during that time, he really set the pattern for originalism. Uh, what he had to say about how the Constitution should be interpreted, uh, that it should be interpreted as it actually read, and that uh, it should neither be reduced to something that was insignificant, nor should it be expanded to bring in things that were never intended uh, as far as powers of the federal government. Uh, his knowledge and understanding of the true meaning of the Constitution, I think, was uh, superior to almost any one we've had since. And as a result, I think he'd be the one most interesting to talk to and to find out and to explore uh, what he meant by that and where we have gone wrong since that time. That would definitely be an interesting conversation to have. So, Mr. Meese, thanks for joining us. We'll wrap up with a game of Supreme Trivia, quotable SCOTUS edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Ed Meese. So we'll read you a quote from a Supreme Court opinion, and you'll guess which justice wrote it. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> First one. Frequently, an issue of this sort will come before the court clad, so to speak, in sheep's clothing, but this wolf comes as a wolf. Would that be Justice Scalia? Ding, 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 ding. That's correct. That was Justice Scalia in his dissenting opinion in Morrison versus Olson, which was the case challenging the constitutionality of the independent counsel statute. Okay. Second one. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. Uh, Justice Scalia, um, after this was written, used to refer to this as the sweet mystery of life passage. I think that was probably Justice Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right again. It was Justice Kennedy in Planned Parenthood uh, versus Casey, and he later expanded upon it in Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell v. Hodges. So interesting fact, the the Casey decision was actually a plurality written by Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter. But Kennedy so frequently reused the language in, in opinions going forward that I think we all know who, who wrote that language. <laughs> so next one. We must never forget it is a constitution we are expounding. Ah, that's, uh, I think, just a story. He, I think he may have said, he probably said, uh, said that as well. But uh, Chief Justice John Marshall beat him to it. Uh -huh. <laughs> he said it first in McCullough versus Maryland. Okay. Uh, this is the most interesting one. So, a fish is, of course, a discrete thing that possesses physical form. See generally, Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. <laughs> Gosh, I'm not sure who that is. Uh, would it be Clarence Thomas? No, um, but another funny justice, Justice Kagan. This was in Yates uh, versus United States, which was a case about whether the Sarbanes-Oxley anti-shredding provision applies to fish. I see. Okay. <laughs> she uh, she's very good about weaving in pop culture and and uh, humor into her opinions. Yes, she is. Um, okay, so I think this is the last one. It's a little bit of a longer quote, and it, it's uh, it's not a modern justice. The choice is not between order and liberty. It is between order with liberty and anarchy without either. There is danger that, if the court does not temper its doctrinaire logic with a little practical wisdom, it will convert the Bill of Rights into a suicide pact. Hmm. 
Gosh, I should know that. I'll give you a hint. <laughs> he was previously an attorney general before right. joining the Supreme Court. He was also called into service to be a judge. He was Robert Jackson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well done. Uh, so that was his uh, descent from Terminello versus City of Chicago, right. uh, which is uh, a case where the court ruled that a, a city ordinance banning speech that stirs the public to anger violates the First Amendment. And when I was reading, I was reading a little bit about Justice Jackson, and he was actually the only person to be Solicitor General, Attorney General, and a Supreme Court Justice, which I think is Quite a quite a resume. <laughs> yes, and also an interesting fact that uh, is not known to anybody, I guess, except me and my wife, and that is my wife's father was actually in the same law firm as Justice Jackson in New York when he was first uh, starting practice. Oh, that's Aww. wonderful. <laughs> well, I think you did uh, did a pretty good job on quotable, scotable, uh, quotable SCOTUS uh, Supreme Trivia. So thanks, Mr. Meese, for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. 